In my personal military judgment, formed over 38 years, we are living in the most dangerous time in my lifetime, right now. I will personally attest to the fact that the world is more dangerous than it's ever been. Looking back over my more than half a century in intelligence, I have not experienced a time when we have been beset by more crises and threats around the globe. Today the global environment is the most uncertain I have seen in my 36 years of service. We are probably in the most serious period of turmoil in our lifetime. So, are you scared yet? All those quotes come from major luminaries of the American foreign policy establishment, including former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper and the late Republican Senator John McCain. Remarkably, all those quotes are from 2012 or later. You probably don't need me to tell you that the span of 2012 to now is not, in fact, the most dangerous period in world history. I pulled those quotes from a new book, Clear and Present Safety, The World Has Never Been Better and Why That Matters to Americans, by Boston Globe columnist Michael A. Cohen and foreign policy magazine columnist Mike Zinko. The main point of their book is that we're scared of the wrong stuff. We're deathly afraid of other countries and of foreign terrorists when by any reasonable metric these threats pose a fraction of the risk of much closer to home ones like gun violence, crumbling infrastructure, the opioid epidemic, and the many, many other things that kill and sicken far more Americans than terrorism or North Korea or any of the other stuff defense contractors get rich scaring us over. The authors argue that the world out there has improved in profound, shocking ways that we often ignore, fixated as we are on its few remaining trouble spots, and that as a result we've developed blinders that prevent us from grappling with the serious and worsening domestic problems that our broken political system is barely lifting a finger to try to fix. This is a really good book. I highly recommend it if you're interested in the question of what Americans are afraid of and why, and I'm pleased to have Michael Cohen on as my guest today. In addition to being a Boston Globe columnist, Michael was formerly a columnist at The Guardian, The Observer, and Foreign Policy, as well as a State Department speechwriter and a lecturer at Columbia University's School of International Public Affairs. He's also the author of American Maelstrom, the 1968 election and the politics of division, which came out in 2016, though I can't imagine how anything about the politics of division is still relevant in 2019. Okay, we'll get to my interview with Michael in just a minute, but a quick programming note. Single-Minded Conversations is now a, uh, a real podcast, for lack of a better word. It's up on a site called fireside.fm. That's my host. So if you want to go to the podcast website, you can go to singlemindedconvos.fireside.fm. More likely, you will listen to it on an app like iTunes where it's available, uh, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. It's sort of up and searchable on all the big boys. Because I myself listen to a lot of podcasts, I believe I'm supposed to tell you to rate it on iTunes. I think that does help a lot. That's one easy way to support my work and support this podcast is to rate and review it uh, either on iTunes or whatever other weird podcatcher app you use. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, jessysingle.substack.com. I'm going to keep sending these out directly to subscribers just because the download numbers, frankly, have been really good. And it sounds like people are listening that way. Another way you could support me is to bribe a foreign dignitary to mention this podcast uh, in their nation's parliament. You know, we could get some crossover international appeal. I think that's about it, though. You can always uh, email me questions, comments, insults. As long as they're creative, you can also insult me at singleminded at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, just just so you know, the first part of my interview with Michael is is about his book. 
after the music break, we broaden out a little bit and we talk about the 2020 race and some other stuff. So I hope you enjoyed this interview. Please do subscribe. I've got a bunch of really good ones already uh, planned. I'm talking to people in the next couple of weeks. I think there's going to be some really good stuff. So stay tuned. And thank you very much again for listening. My understanding of the key takeaway of your book is that Sharia law is about to sweep across Brooklyn and I should hole up in a bunker, correct? <laughs> actually, you pretty much nailed it. Yeah, that's it. I think we're done here, actually. Exactly. It's, good, it's good work. Okay, so let, let's start with the softball. Why Why should people buy your book? Uh, it's really good. I mean, I think that's the Okay, thing. next question. That's it. Uh, I, I think the reason I, I, I think the reason people should buy it, I hope, or people I think would, would enjoy it, is that I, I think it just gives people a different perspective on... Uh, the world around them. I think it tells a story that I don't think is, is, is rarely told uh, in foreign policy circles and political circles about this extraordinary story that's happened uh, in the international environment over the past 25, 30 years, which is this incredible progress that we've seen. Higher life expectancy, uh, better living standards, more people uh, out of poverty, people going to school, uh, people having access to health care and to, to clean water and to food. Um, it's just an extraordinary story. Um, so I think that's one part of it. And the second part of it is, you know, I think it's a cautionary tale of where things are going in America. And and, I, and the argument we make in the book is that they're going in the opposite direction to the rest of the world. That we are seeing um, these growing set of domestic challenges from you know, the opiate epidemic to gun violence to access to health care uh, to a whole host of economic indicators that uh, suggests that you know we we are we are moving uh, precipitously, I think, toward decline in this country, and that you know th- that we need to sort of focus a little more on these challenges at home, and and stop sort of focusing so much on these imaginary threats from overseas. You know, the world is getting better around us. We're facing more challenges at home, and we need to sort of create a foreign policy and a domestic policy that that addresses that. As you guys point out in the book, there's this grand American tradition of presidents and other powerful people scaring the hell out of everyone. And and you could trace it back to the 19th century, even earlier if you wanted to. But Harry Truman, who was really sort of the uh, first LeBron James level talent in terms of scaring people in this way, right? <laughs> yes, Harry Truman is the GOAT. No question about <laughs> it. No question. About it. Well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know if he's the GOAT, but he certainly was the first. At least in the, I mean, I, you can go back obviously much further. You go back to the Spanish-American War, quite a bit of threat mongering around the the threat uh, from Spain. But what's different about Truman, I think, why you know we, we sort of tell the story with him, is that th- this comes right after 1947 and the, the, the Truman Doctrine. It comes right after the end of World War II, when Americans have just fought the, the bloodiest conflict in human history, and they kind of want to take a break from the rest of the world. And Truman has to convince them that, no, they should really care about what's happening in Europe and, and the growth of communism and potential for, for European countries to fall you know, into the Soviet sphere. And so he does you know, what has often been the case over the past 70 years. He scares the hell out of the American people. He tells them that if we don't uh, support more money for Greece and Turkey for anti-communist um, elements in both those countries, they could fall to the communists and this would put America in, in danger. And this sort of begins this process of kind of inflating the threat 
from the Soviet Union, inflating the communist threat, in order to build support for what is a very sort of interventionist and um, global foreign policy, global leadership for America to play that is much sort of broader than anything America has done previously. And yeah. so in a lot of ways, the threat mongering that we see during the Cold War and, and actually even up until after the Cold War is really about trying to justify America's role in the world. And the way that, that presidents have consistently justified this extraordinary sort of American empire that we have and we've created over the past 70 years is by scaring people and by convincing them that if we don't play this global leadership role, that it's going to somehow boomerang against us and, and, and harm Americans directly. And the um, as you guys point out, the threat mongering with regard to communism sort of achieved some comedic heights during the Vietnam War. My, I laughed out loud. There was a quote, I'm not sure by who, that says that, um, you know, if we if we abandon the fight in Vietnam, we should throw in the towel in the area and pull back our defenses to San Francisco. And I was imagining Saigon falling. And then, you know, a week later, the Viet Cong is marching down the Embarcadero. Like, that's exactly. Gonna so that was Lyndon Johnson, uh, who really, I think, you know, raised, raised threat mongering to an art form during the Vietnam War, at least in the way that he talked about uh, the threat from communist, communism. And, and, of course, this was to justify a war that was pretty hard to justify, uh, a, a war that didn't really affect the U.S. directly in any, in any way, shape or form. I mean, the North Vietnamese were not coming to San Francisco or Hawaii or anywhere else in the United States. And so to justify this extraordinary application of U.S. military force, you know, we had to, they had to scare people. They had to convince them that this was a serious threat to America. Uh, and that's what they did. And, that, and, they, and, and it, for a while it worked, actually. You know, it's, it's sort of hard to remember this now, but for the first couple of years of the Vietnam War, Americans were convinced this was uh, an important national priority. And it was only really after the Tet Offensive in 68 in which things began to move in a different direction um, against the war. But, you know, you had strong support for the war when, when, when Johnson sent troops there, and largely because he convinced Americans that this was in our national interest to fight uh, and, and for American leaders to fight and die in Vietnam. So, I mean, there's great, really great history in the book. That's one of the reasons I would recommend it to anybody. But I also want to talk a little bit about the present state of what you guys call the threat industrial complex or TIC. So I'll just quickly read this description you guys provide, which is it bears direct similarities to the military industrial complex and its, quote, acquisition of unwarranted influence, quote, that President Dwight D. Eisenhower famously warned of in his farewell address in 1961. Like the group that Eisenhower described then, the TIC is not clandestinely plotting behind closed doors and hidden mountain lairs. It is not a club that its members sign up for or pay yearly dues to. Neither is this far-flung group part of a secret or deliberate conspiracy to shape public perceptions, though it certainly has that effect. I thought that was a really good basic rundown, but tell me a bit more about you know what you think everyone should know about the threat industrial complex. So, you know, it's... the we, we, we talk about the industrial complex is really sort of this this weird amalgamation of of groups, some on the left, some on the right, mostly on the right, but 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 all driven by this kind of um, uh, reputational and sort of profit motivated uh, um, interest. And so, you know, for example, we talk about the, the military, which which consistently uh, inflates foreign threats in, in large measure to keep their budgets in place. Uh, the more you inflate foreign threats, the more you sort of argue that, you know, if we don't have the latest, uh, you know, uh, fighter aircraft or the latest, uh, you know, Navy ship, we can't compete with the Chinese or Russians or insert whatever country you want to insert, then we're going to be fall behind. Well, you know, then they, they sort of, that's how they make their case for it. Um, and then it's the military contractors who, who are in, who end up uh, supplying these weapons. They sort of want to make the case for why America's in a danger as well. Um, it's the think tank folks who want people to pay attention to their issue. It's even sort of the human rights organizations that want people to 
uh, you know, focus on, on their human rights concerns. And so one way to be able to, to focus on their issues is to tell people that this is a threat, tell people they have reason to be scared about it. It's very hard to build you know, support for your issue if you say, you know, really, it's not a big deal. You know, really, it's fine. If we do nothing, you know, nothing's really going to happen. You know, it, that doesn't really work. You need to have sort of this negative kind of argument uh, or this threat-based argument or fear-based argument to get people to sort of uh, uh, take your issue seriously. And so there, there is kind of this uh, a bias almost toward sort of playing up worst-case scenarios. Um, and you see this just sort of consistently. And it's just interesting, too. I mean, I was I was thinking about this in the, in the relation to climate change recently. You know, if you go back uh, like 50 years, there were books about how um, the world's going to run out of food. Right. We were going to they were we had this. There's there wasn't there are too many people in the world and we don't have enough food and we're going to have sort of mass starvation. And the people who were the, the population was too big. We had too many people. We couldn't we couldn't feed all of them. We couldn't house all of them. And all those sort of views tended were wrong they <laughs> tended to be wrong they were wrong they're absolutely 100 percent incorrect we have way more people than we had in 68 and we can feed way more people now than we could 50 years ago so that's a huge that's a huge thing so i think there is sort of this this almost like psychological need to sort of focus on the negative or to think about uh you know what's the worst case scenario to play that up and and that's a way to get attention for yourself and let's be honest about it you know if you want to sell books too it's one way to get attention for yourself uh it's harder to sell books as i can attest if your argument is Really, everything's okay, and we have nothing much to worry about, and we should really stop obsessing over every single foreign threat out there. Well, you guys should have titled the book "The The Threat Industrial Complex Is Coming for Your Family." <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's right. That's right. I, I do think. I mean, that the whole sort of um, our tendency to attend more to negative stuff, I, I I think, is really interesting from an evolutionary perspective. Like the basic idea is that. The caveman who was more neurotic and paid more attention to the threat of a tiger, even if a tiger wasn't there, would be more likely to survive. And that's obviously right. a little bit of an oversimplified approach. But I mean, you sort of see that, right? Like if you're a yeah, salesman absolutely. or an author, sure. it's just that's how you sell stuff. Right. I mean, there is sort of a, there is sort of an idea there that something will make your life better. But there's also an idea that that if you don't do this, something in your life will be worse. Right. This is a way to protect yourself. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because we talked about before talked about this during the, the Cold War. And, of course, then it was the communists and the red threat and so on. And then, you know, after the Cold War, it became uh, and especially, of course, after 9-11 became terrorists. And then in recent years, it was uh, it was undocumented immigrants, which, of course, you know, Trump plays on all the time. So there is sort of this constant kind of reinvention of fear as a as a, as a tool of motivation, a tool to get people sort of to um, uh excited or motivated or, or supporting your policy platform or political platform. So I, I think it, it's unfortunate. I mean, I, I can argue this is wrong, but I, I have to also be honest and say it's also very effective. Uh, it does work with a lot of people and does, I think, re people respond to this kind of negative message and respond to this kind of threat-based message. And, you know, in some ways, I mean, the, the funny thing about, about talking about the book is that I feel like I'm sometimes in danger of doing the same thing and sort of playing up how, how bad things are in the United States, right? right? I mean, one way to get people to say, like, to buy the thesis of our book and then buy the book is to argue, well, things are really bad in America. I mean, things are, are bad. Things are, get, are getting worse. They're not, they're not like, you know, dystopian uh, kind of wasteland that, that I think sometimes you, I, I can be sort of moved to sort of go in that direction because it's a way to get people's attention. <laughs> right. It's not that bad. Uh, but I, I, it's funny in, in, in sort of promoting the book, Sort of realizing how easy it is to sort of fall into this trap of kind of, you know, inflating the rhetoric and scaring people a little bit mm -hmm. to get them to, to buy into your argument. 
But the trap, I feel like the trap sort of goes both ways because like our, the American style of decline, in my view, if tell me if you disagree, it's not like we're beset all sides on enemies who want to kill us. It's more, we're like a, a really old and stately mansion that is just falling apart in every way. And no one's really paying attention to it. And that that's sort of more boring because you need to do the work of like reupholstering stuff and fixing <laughs> squeaky doors. And it's just, right. it's so much less dramatic and it, you know, tens of thousands of people are dying of opioid overdoses. And it's just, it is happening in sort of like a, a quiet way that doesn't attract the attention a, a big sexy new war does, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's sort of like everyone's out building a moat around the mansion, right? And sharpening <laughs> yes. sticks to stop against the enemies. And meanwhile, like the house is literally collapsing, right? I mean, the roof is caving in and, you know, there's there's like a an ant infestation and you've got like mold here. I mean, that that's kind of what it, that's a good analogy for it. That's kind of what's happened in this country that we have, we devote so much, many resources with attention to the military, to overseas threats, to terrorism. When meanwhile, we have these just incredible challenges at home that have gotten worse and worse and worse that we are just to a large extent ignoring. I mean, I, 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 that seems like a, a bit of an overstatement, but it really isn't. I mean, we really have, they have this terrible opiate epidemic in this country in which 70,000 Americans are getting, are dying every year from drug overdoses. And we have done very, very little on the national, on the national level to deal with this issue. Um, and it's it's sort of shocking to see it happening and shocking that that there isn't more focus on it. I think part of the problem is there just isn't enough of a recognition realization of how big a crisis this is um, or just, you know, politics gets in the way. It's a lot easier to say we want to build an aircraft carrier or we want to go bomb a few terrorists in Syria or Iraq than it is to, like, do the hard work of really dealing with some uh, this, this epidemic at home. Yeah. Well, so much of American politics is explained by the Simpsons episode where they see a single bear and develop an entire bear patrol complete That's with an right. air force to fight it. I, I was trying to figure out a way to work in a reference to that. But anyway. Uh, and then Homer so, freaks out because of the bear tax that he has to pay. Yes, exactly. Right. Immediately, they hi- right. They have the bear air force, but then no one wants to pay for it with the bear tax. So. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so it goes. In a dark and twisted way, I really like the details you guys included about the CIA's role in, in Hollywood. Could you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, story that you know, over the past couple of years, uh, the CIA and the Pentagon have devoted a great deal of resources toward Hollywood filmmaking. What they've done is basically created a liaison office uh, in in L.A. that is geared toward helping filmmakers make films that are sort of more realistic or that, uh, you know, utilize um, uh, military equipment. But the effect of it is also to tell a story that the military and the CIA wants to tell. Um, and I think the best and most sort of insidious example of this was was Zero Dark Thirty, which was about the uh, raid to kill Osama bin Laden, and which <laughs> took some liberties with the facts on that one, uh, portrayed the um, CIA in a very positive light, but also, you know, basically argued that torture had been the, the tool that that the U.S. had used in order to capture bin Laden, which or to kill bin Laden, which was not true. So it, it's sort of this this way of um, using uh, film, using sort of cultural. Uh, elements to, to sort of promote this message that the CIA and military want to promote. And it's often a fear-based message. It's often a very militaristic message. Um, and it's one that has a very specific agenda. I mean, you look at, I mean, it's just, I, this is off subject a little bit, but do you ever watch some of these, um, some of these ads for the, the army ads? That oh, they it's great. On it's, TV? I, no, this is one of those weird things where I just feel like the most stereotypical Brooklyn liberal, because I, I get so outraged. Is it, you know, it makes it look like a, a fun video game. Like you're going to go overseas, you're going to kill terror. I mean, it's, it's disgraceful. 
I was I was letting I let my kids watch. Uh, my kids are, are are pretty young. I let them watch um, some of the uh, basketball game the other day, and the, and there was the army ad came on, and I had a hard time explaining to them why this was really. I mean, they, first of all, they were a little scared by it, but also explaining like why this was so awful. And I just I can't imagine like what if you know people see these images all the time. They think of the being in the military as some kind of, um, you know, I mean, it's obviously a very noble thing to do. I'm not trying to de- degrade the military, but there's just something so sort of militaristic and so kind of, you know, off-putting about the way it's presented that I, I'm surprised that more people don't get, don't get troubled by it. It's glamorizing, you know, this military. And I think I think if you ask most people in the military what they see in those in those videos, very few soldiers ever participate in that kind of that kind of uh, actions in the military, right? I mean, that's just not what what most people in the military do. But it's also a way it, it really does glamorize it in a way that I think of as as as, as sort of that has a long antecedents that goes back, you know, centuries of sort of glamorizing the idea of being in the military, glamorizing war fighting, and it's it is kind of insidious. And I think you know it is a, it is something where it's, it's sort of a one sided presentation of what it's like to be in the army, what it's like to be in the military, what it's like to, you know, fight for your country. One-sided and I think very kind of, you know, uh, um, not representative. And, and it, it's, 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 I think it's, it's, it's concerning, but it also speaks to this idea of it's, it plays up this notion that there are these terrible enemies out there trying to kill people and trying to kill Americans. And, you know, you join the military, you can stop these enemies from killing Americans and you can protect us. Well, that isn't really what the military usually does, to be honest, even though that's how it's portrayed. Right. Also, in none of those ads does a kid get his leg blown off because his Humvee wasn't up armored. You know, exactly, exactly, exactly. That is exactly correct, right? Or because uh, his commander in chief sent him into a, to fight a stupid war, he, should, he shouldn't be shouldn't <laughs> engaged in. They skip that part. <laughs> do you think that? Um, do you think Americans or humans like we just have trouble accepting the fact that we really are by a wide margin the greatest military power on earth, and they're just. There isn't any threat in sight, at least in the medium term. Is that just a hard thing to really internalize and sit with because of how we're evolved and how attendant we are to various threats? You know, I, I this is a great question. I think about this a lot. To what extent this is something that is sort of hardwired into us as humans and something that's that's more American. And obviously there's an evolutionary element to this. I mean, you talked about it earlier, and there's no question that we tend to respond to what we consider to be ex- threats to us or existential threats, we sort of respond more viscerally to them. I mean, that's 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 very, that's I'm not breaking new ground in saying in, in describing that. But what's different with Americans is that we tend to seem to inflate those threats when other countries don't. I mean, the British and the French and the Germans don't really have the same kind of fear-based sort of foreign policy. Uh, fear-based, yeah, fear-based foreign policy. That's that's that, that they don't they don't they don't think of it in the same terms that we do. And I think part of the reason is political. I think that because we as I said earlier, America is, is an unusual country in that we are sort of are an empire, but we're a benevolent empire. And we have bases and we have interests all over the world. We define our interests in, in the global way, in a way that I think no other country does, right? What happens in the, in the Persian Gulf, we define as a vital national security interest, okay? No other country really does that. And we also, by the way, define what happens in the South China Sea as a vital national security interest. Right. And we define what happens in, you know, Latin America, as a vital national security interest. I mean, everything to us is, is vital and everything is a national security interest. And the only way you can sort of justify that kind of, I mean, you could justify it by saying, look, we do this because it's in our interest, because it helps us economically, because it's good for the world, it creates more stability. You can make that argument, some politicians do, but it's a lot easier <laughs> to make the argument if you can say, look, if we're not in the Persian Gulf, well, then, you know, something bad's gonna happen to America. It's gonna, the terrorists are gonna win. 
or Iran's going to get a nuclear weapon, or you know North Korea will get a nuclear weapon if we're not if we're not in 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 Korea, or the Chinese will become too strong and they'll overtake us. I mean that's kind of the way the argument goes, and I think that there is something you know evolutionary, but there's also something that's very uniquely American about about this, and I think it has a lot to do with the politics of this and how we define our interests because it really is different than the way that any other country in the world ever has defined its interests, really. Do you think part of it could be that we have a certain shamelessness that that other countries lack? I mean, what I mean by this is um, Germany is an example of this, where I, I would not compare our foreign policy crimes against humanity to theirs by any means. There's no of comparison. Not. Of course but not. in Germany, they did horrific stuff, and the country really did grapple with it for decades to the point where you know, in 2006, when they had a World Cup, they had a big debate over whether it was even okay to wave the German flag. It feels right. like in the States, we blow up 800,000 people and we just sort of move on and we never quite think about what that actually means to blow up 800,000 people. It, it, that seems in a disturbing way to be a bit another part of that sort of political culture you're talking about, right? Well, yes. I mean, there is an element here that we do think that I won't use the, uh, this expression I'd like to use, but I, because I can't use it. That's something that uh, uh, <laughs> well, I, I won't go there. there. A little bit. Curious. No, I, 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 no, I, I can't use profanity. I'm sure on the podcast, so I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to go there. But I'll say instead that we we tend to view ourselves as as a city on a hill. We view ourselves as people who act in a benevolent way around the world. And and here's the thing: for the most part, Jesse, we do. We are by the most by for the most part a pretty benevolent you know, country, pretty benevolent empire, we do a lot of good things around the world. We also do some bad things, too, when you're right, we don't take responsibility for them, which we don't really acknowledge or sort of integrate into our foreign policy. But I think there is some element here that we think, well, you know, we're good actors. So if we're doing these things around the world, we're doing it in the best interest of not just America, but the rest of the world. And so I, I think that that plays a role as well. But I, I, I don't know that I think it's, well, one thing I'll say is that, you know, there there are major periods in American history, and we talk about this in the book a little bit, which America sort of t takes a more, isolationist is not the right word, but sort of takes a more restrained role right. Right. around the world. I mean, I, was, I think people sort of forget this, but after Vietnam, which, was, which ended in, in the early 70s, uh, 70, 73, last year's soldiers came out, until 1991, you know, we didn't really, except I think for Grenada, we didn't really um, uh, involve the U.S. military around the world. Um, and then Gulf War, actually, I would argue, is a pretty good example of how you can use U.S. military force in a, in a, in a, in a way with other countries to be that's effective. Uh, oddly enough, there is sort of a strong isolationist stance in this, in this country, and there is sort of an inclination to not necessarily play this active role around the world, which I think is one of the reasons why threat mongering is so, is so pervasive here. Because you do have to sort of get past this idea that, like, we're not the world's policemen, right? As long as I've been thinking about or writing about foreign policy— there's, you can look at poll after poll after poll that will show Americans don't really want to be the world's policemen. That, that's not how we see ourselves. We don't want to do that. We, I mean, there's a new poll out this week. It's fascinating. I wrote a column about it this week about from American Progress, uh, Center for American Progress did this report sort of saying that, look, Americans really would rather that we spent less time using our military overseas and more, more, and spent more time you know, focusing on diplomacy or, or economic and political uh, levers as opposed to military levers. And it shows that we want to work with other countries. That has been true for decades. So I think that there is this kind of there is this pull among Americans to sort of say we don't want to get involved. So one way to get Americans to want to get involved is to convince them that uh, if we don't 
somehow our security is at risk. I think that's where I'd push back because it, it seems like one of those, um, you know, if you ask someone in a survey, how active a role should we take in foreign affairs? Should we be the policeman? They'll say no, but isn't, you would know this better than I would, but you know, the Vietnam war for a long time was everyone was in favor of it. The second much worse Iraq war, everyone was in favor of it. It seems like every single instance is the exception where we have to get involved. This is really in our national interest. Yes, but but I think it's worth considering the context of both of those wars. Uh, the Vietnam War came, you know, at the tail end of a twenty-year period of of red baiting, of warning about communism, of warning about the Soviet threat, of convincing Americans that you know rolling back communism or not rolling back, just containing communism and eventually rolling back communism was essential to in order to keep Americans safe. And I think that that Charles explains why we got involved in Vietnam. But of course, you know, people came out, people. Within a year or two after the war began, about two and a half years after the war began, began to realize that you know they were being sold a bill of goods and they and they and their support for the war waned. And I think and after that, people didn't want to get involved militarily. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan was a big, pretty big hawk on foreign policy. He also, I think, except for Grenada, never sent American troops overseas. I guess Lebanon that was a peacekeeping mission, but uh, as far as invading occupied country, only one that, that happened was Grenada. Um, and then you know, with the with the Iraq War, you're right about that. But again, think of the context there. I mean. Would we have invaded Iraq if not for 9-11, if not for a concerted full court effort on the part of the Bush administration and their enablers to convince Americans that this was a, a dire threat that had to be dealt with? And even, you know, with all of that, you know, drumbeat of threat mongering, of inflating, of threat inflation, of exaggeration, there still wasn't strong support for the war. Uh, it wasn't like it was 70, 80 percent like you saw during the Gulf War. And in fact, in, people forget this, but. You know, when the Gulf War happens in 1991, the vast of Democrats opposed it, right? I mean, it was hard to get Americans to support that war. That was, I mean, so, and that came at a time, I think, that was still sort of in the post-Vietnam era. People just were skeptical about use of military force and had to be convinced that it was in their interest to do so. You know, I think, I think what you see is that this is how threat mongering works. You know, I mean, one thing we, I mean, we make in the book is that we never would have invaded Iraq if not for the extraordinary efforts at threat exaggeration that went on from the Bush administration. I mean, they, from the moment the 9-11 attacks happened, they portrayed this attack as, you know, it's a war against freedom, right? It's freedom, it's, a, it's evildoers. They, they portrayed this in such a way that, that convinced Americans that this was in their, you know, personal interest, like in their, you know, if we didn't do this, that we could die, right? right. We'd have mushroom clouds over American cities. I think without that kind of you know, disingenuous, dishonest, threat-mongering. I don't think there's any way you would have built support for going to war in Iraq. So maybe the way to square the circle is we have, we do have some isolationist tendencies, but we're we're also very easily fooled some of the time. Right, but I don't think that necessarily, you know, we're the exception in that respect. I mean, I think that, you know, I think other countries sort of, in, in a similar scenario, could fall for the same kind of situation as well. I mean, I, I think, you know, for a variety of reasons. One is that we, I think, we have an overinflated view of our own importance, an overinflated view of our own um, benevolence. That maybe we're more susceptible to these kind of arguments. But you know, I mean, look, humans are humans, and there's no other, no, no getting away around the fact that if you scare them enough and convince them that you know their lives are at risk if they don't do something about it, they're gonna, they, they, they may end up coming around. You know, every country's got a different context. I mean, it wouldn't work in a place like Germany because of World War II. It wouldn't work, wouldn't work in Japan. I mean, it works in France to some extent. Uh, it, worked in Eng it works in England to some extent. I mean, I think it depends on the context and, and kind of the political culture in that country. Um, and I think that, you know, as Americans, we have become 
unfortunately, we're very susceptible to these kind of arguments. And because also the nature of a political system, you need a president who has such influence on shaping public opinion. I mean, there's a lot of research on this, that, that presidents, the bully pulpit is not terribly effective on domestic policy. It's super effective on foreign policy, super effective. Right. And, and presidents have an have enormous ability to, uh, to influence how Americans think about the world. It's one of the reasons why, you know, we, we talk about this in the book, but Bush's, Bush's speeches about Iraq were so effective because he had this bully pulpit, he wasn't being contested very much, and allowed him to shape how people view the 9-11 attacks. And that's why I think, I believe, he was able to build support for the war. Let's end this segment. Um, let me run one of my hottest hot takes by you and see what you, what you think. I love hot takes. It's my favorite. I'm, I'm great with hot takes. Basically, I think a version of what you talk about with foreign policy is happening on a segment of the left. I don't mean like far leftists, but pro- progressives too, with regard to domestic policy. Basically, I think like we face a lot of really complicated problems. Like we have a pretty regressive federal tax policy, and that would take a right. lot of, um, you know, you need to fix that politically. And we have a terrible political paralysis, and we have infrastructure problems that are probably not going to get fixed. So I think part of what's happened is there's this sort of fantasy that the way we're going to fix things politically is sort of fighting Nazis in the street or that we're fighting like actual hardcore white supremacists. And I obviously agree those groups are scary and probably growing a little in the Trump years, but I just, I don't think they're the real, the main story. And I think people get seduced by the idea of living in cinematic epic times where they're fighting in the streets rather than you know, haggling over tax policy, which is really boring. Does that uh, resonate with you at all? I mean, there's something to that. I mean, I mean, what is more visceral than Nazis, right? I mean, yeah, let's exactly. be honest about it. I mean, I, you know, uh, for those of you Breaking Bad fans out there, I mean, there's <laughs> yes. a reason why after showing this descent of Walter White into pure evil, what do they end it with? By him allotting himself with Nazis. Like, that's the final, you know, frontier of just, of evil. And so I, I do think that, like, that kind of, when you see that kind of, um, uh, you know, neo-Nazis marching in Charlottesville and so forth, that I think it has a visceral effect on people. And just in the same way that, that you know, uh, shootings, this, this, this horrific tragedy in Pittsburgh or this recent one in California, it has a visceral effect. And it's interesting because, and I'll relate a little bit to something in the book, you know, we, we, were, we have a very visceral response to school shootings for obvious reasons, right? I mean, it's a, it's, these are one-off events. These are children that are being that are being slaughtered. These are, you know, a high, high number of casualties. But, but school shootings are a very small part of the gun violence picture in America. Very small part. I mean, majority of, of gun deaths in America are suicides. Uh, I think something like 60 percent. Those are the stories that don't get nearly enough attention. The, the, the extraordinary threat that the gun ownership represents as far as having a gun in your home just exponentially increases the likelihood that someone at home will die from gun violence. And the best way to stop that from happening is simply not having a gun in your home. That's what we should be talking about. But the focus is, is on school shootings, right? And we have now we have all these drills that we force kids to go through, and, and kids are now literally dying to protect their classmates. I mean, it's just horrific. Perfect. But this gets so much attention, and I understand why it does, and there's really no way you can avoid that. These are, these are news stories, these are events. But this is not really where the story is on gun violence. And I think that this gets to something, you know, there, it's understandable that people have a kind of visceral reaction to, you know, Nazis marching in Charlottesville and Nazis driving cars into crowds and killing people. Um, and it's, it's not surprising people have this sort of visceral reaction to it. I mean, one, but it's useful to sort of point out to them that this isn't, that these are the exception, not the rule. And I think one thing that happened after the New Zealand massacre, I think there was this inclination to talk about the sort of global threat from white supremacy. 
And look, th- this is a problem. I mean, I'm not going to display. I'm not going to downplay. I mean, there are there are there is certainly this sort of cross global movement of different white supremacists and alt right, if you want to call it that, movements. But again, I mean, it's it's really it's easy to inflate that the nature of that threat. And I think that we we can do that again because because the events that these people engage in are so visceral. Look, there's a reason why terrorists do things like that. They want to get people uh, fearful. They want to have an impact, and that's why. And that's you know why people you know have this sort of visceral feeling about Islamic terrorism or jihadist terrorism uh, because of 9/11. I mean, look, this is uh, we all saw it. It was a horrific event. I mean, you tell people that in fact more Americans will die in a week from gun violence than, than on an ordinary week than from what happened on 9-11, they probably aren't even going to believe you or they won't take it seriously or they won't, they won't see the need to respond at, like the way we responded to 9-11. So yes. I do think that those kind of visceral events, they have an effect on our psyche that's, you know, it's hard to underestimate. And I think we're, we're biologically, it's very hard for us to sort of ignore these events or to not inflate the kind of threat they represent. Anything else you want to add about the book before we move on? Yeah, you should buy it. That's what I want to add. <laughs> I, I definitely second that. Uh, okay, we will take a quick break and then we'll move on to the 2020 presidential race. We're back with Boston Globe columnist Michael Cohen. So, Michael, I'll start the last part of the show the same way I started the first by asking you sort of a a way too broad question. What's your general feeling about how the 2020 race is going to go down so far, particularly when it comes to the Democratic primary? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, I after 20, 2016, I was spectacularly wrong about what was going to happen. I got one thing right. I thought Trump would be the nominee early on, but I thought Hillary Clinton would win and win handily. And I was, of course, wrong about that. So I avoid making predictions if I can. Having said that, I I wrote that as my newsletter earlier this week. I I think that it's pretty obvious that that Joe Biden is the front runner in this race and is a candidate to beat. And uh, I I find it increasingly difficult to... to, Well, I should... uh, Let me restate that. I, I, I think there's a strong... The strongest case he made for any candidate in this field is Biden, and um, I think he has a pretty big advantage. One that I don't think I fully appreciated before he got in the race, um, but I think that this—I think the combination of his pretty strong support among African American voters, which is crucial, Democratic primary, this desperate desire for Democrats to pick somebody who they think is electable, this belief that I think is false, but yet it certainly exists that only a man, only a white man can beat Trump. I think all of those play in Biden's favor. And also the fact that you have this very, very large field in which it's very hard for a competitor to Biden to emerge. And so I think what ends up happening is that Biden you know, has pretty broad support in the party and it's hard for, and everyone else sort of divvies up the rest. And I think, I think it's hard for anyone else to emerge. Who do you, who do you think believes that only a white man can beat Trump? I mean, like every voter I talk to, <laughs> I mean, I will tell you this, that it is, it is striking to me how many voters I speak to and, and not just, you know, in New Hampshire or around the country, but in, you know, here in New York, you talk to Democrats and they will say to you that, you know, I, I mean, I, I use Elizabeth Warren as the example of this. 
I think she's very impressive. I think she's the most impressive candidate in the field so far that I've seen. But I, I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with Democrats who said to me, I like her, I like what she says, but I'm not sure she can win. <sighs> Why can't she win? Well, she's a woman, you know, Trump's going to go after her on, the, on the Native American issue. And, you know, she'll she'll lose and Biden's a safer pick. You hear this a lot. And so I do think that it's interesting because I, I remember having this debate on Twitter a couple a couple days ago where someone sort of said this is silly and anybody can be Trump. And I sort of think that there's some truth to that and, and sort of criticize this idea that that uh, this idea that, exi- that now exists among, among Democratic voters that, that a woman can't win. And I had this point that I don't you don't hear this from pundits so much. You don't hear it from like the, the folks on 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 TV or uh, MSNBC or CNN. You hear it from voters like voters have internalized this idea that that Hillary Clinton lost because she was a woman. And a man can be Trump. It, it is it is really interesting. Uh, and I think that it's one that is very pervasive among Democrats. I think it's going to be very hard for, for Warren or any other candidate to undo that. It's so weird, like just as a human nature thing, the way you take a U.S. Pre- presidential election, which is the most complicated, overdetermined thing. You take an example where the Democrat won by three million votes. And then your takeaway of all that is like, oh, it's because she was a woman. And I'm not even saying that's like necessarily false, but just it seems like pretty reductive especially given that she did you know she won the popular vote i couldn't agree with you more i mean look without without the jim comey letter in in 10 days before the election you know we're all talking about that we've gotten past this this um this issue of electing a, a, a female president you know and donald trump would be on twitter ranting about stuff and no one would care uh i mean it is it is sort of a you, you've actually touched on what uh, enormous frustration I have about the 2016 election, that Hillary Clinton losing was a fluke. Now, I, I, I'm the first to, to agree to I be the first to agree that she was a flawed candidate, that she had problems, that there were issues with her. But she ran a pretty good campaign for the most part. She won all three debates. She had pretty good ads. Uh, I thought her strategy made sense based on the polling that we saw. I think she just got really unlucky. And, you know, Donald Trump drew an inside straight. In, in winning election, which he lost by three million votes, and so I, I think that um, you know we we can there is a, it's really easy to sort of over analyze what happened in 2016, but you know this is like a Sisyphus trying to make this argument to people right. because voters aren't going to buy it. And frankly, like if you talk to voters about this, what's the one Democratic voters I should say, what's the one thing they care most about, and anything else? This is beating Trump. That's right. all they care about. They want Trump out. And I listen, I don't blame them. I mean, I feel the exact same way. I don't want Trump as president either. I think he's terrible. Uh, I've written, you know, 150 plus columns basically making that argument. So I get it. And I think it's, I think, you know, psychologically, this kind of gets back to a little bit of the threat mongering conversation. I mean, you see the threat from Trump in sort of existential terms. You'll do whatever you have to do to, to beat him. And so that might mean picking a 70 something year old guy who's pretty out of touch with the Democratic Party is today. But Hey, he can win. Yeah, I mean, the whole electability thing is just so weird, and and so many people are projecting so many like fears and fantasies whenever they make electability arguments. It's just in a whole, the entire sort of media ecosystem of of American political analysis. There's a lot of like voodoo stuff going on in pseudoscience and and pseudo political science, but like electability is just this sort of phantasm at this point that I I have a lot of trouble understanding a lot of the arguments about it because I think people are just sort of guessing, right? Of course they're guessing. They have no idea. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's two things. One is electability is about how people think other people will vote. 
not how they're going to vote, how other people will vote. So that's right. the first problem right there. So it's like it's based on broad generalizations. And the second problem is that we we've we've now this is one of the problems that I have in general with all the political analysis that goes on on television and talk radio and so forth is that everyone now thinks they're a pundit and everyone talks <laughs> like a pundit. This actually is something that makes me crazy as a, as a person who covers campaigns is that what I all I hear over and over, you talk to voters and you ask them about policy issues and like they they can't even talk about the policy issues. But once you have the politics of it, then they've got all kinds of opinions about that. And it's and especially with presidential campaigns all about who can win. And who's the most electable and who's going to appeal to blue collar voters in Ohio and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's they're, they're following the cues to some extent of what they hear on you know, TV shows and here on radio or they read the paper. But I do think that that it's uh, it's unfortunate because I mean, I, I think, look, I think it's, there's always been this element in American politics. I, I don't think it's this is necessarily, you know, just some brand new phenomenon. But it feels like it's gotten worse because as we've gotten sort of this this industry of punditry, of which I am a member of, I have to admit, uh, it, I think it turns voters into pundits and it makes them, like you, like you talked about, to think about electability in a way that I think is distorting. You know, and it's, it's and, and Warren is a good case study for this because, I mean, everybody I've talked to about Warren, I, I've had one person say they didn't, they didn't like her, one Democrat. Uh, most people say they like her. They think she's really smart, think she has good ideas. But, you know, can she win? That, that's the issue. Uh, with her, with other candidates, I mean, you do see, you do hear more. I like people like Mayor Pete, or they like Kamala Harris for various reasons. But it often does come down to the electability question. And you're right. I mean, none of us have good answers on this one. And to some extent, uh, but you know, there is some evidence to support that, that Biden will be more electable. And once you see that evidence, just just furthers your the biases you already have. Right. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, Michelle Goldberg's column in today's New York Times headlined. Twitter isn't real life, parentheses, if you're a Democrat. She wrote, it's not just that Twitter traffic doesn't appear to reflect the priorities of the Democratic electorate. Spending too much time on the platform can be actively misleading about the state of the party, as you can see in the polling surge of Joe Biden, a man despised by the online left. I, I take it you're genuinely sympathetic to the idea of sort of the online left skewing the way we view politics? Absolutely. I mean, I... I, I... You know, one thing I I like Twitter a lot. I'm one of the, I'm one of the few people you'll meet who's like an evangelist for Twitter. I think it's great. I was gonna say, what is what is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I like enjoy because first of all, it allows me to like communicate with people who read my my stuff, and I, I enjoy that part of it. It's a way to promote your stuff. Actually, you meet interesting people, interesting ideas. You know, I've always said it's the best aggregator that's ever been invented, um, as far as uh, aggregating. Um, you know. Um, a way to sort of find articles, interesting, interesting things you wouldn't find anywhere else. But it's incredibly distorting. And, you know, it's not real life. And you have to remind yourself of that often. I had this interesting thing a couple of, um, I, I mean, do you remember a couple of months ago, this, this um, thing with these guys, these, these boys from Kentucky, who supposedly harassed this Native American Oh, do I? I mean, I wrote a, I wrote a rant about it for my newsletter. The Covington Kids. The Covington Kids. So I, 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 of course, like many people, when I first saw the video, I was outraged and wrote all these like sort of sanctimonious, <laughs> self-righteous pieces about, oh, this is all Trump's fault, and blah, blah, blah. And then when, of course, we saw more video, I'm like, oh, I guess I was wrong about that. And so I, I apologize. No, but you should, you should have doubled down and despite the video quite clearly showing something different, just ignored that. That's what you're supposed to do. Right. Well, that's what happened, right? So, so I, I, um, you know, sort of said I was wrong. I should apologize to these kids. I mean, they didn't, since they didn't do anything wrong. And 
you know, they're teenagers, so let's not, let's not, you know, castigate them for, for time memorial. And I mean, that was a very controversial notion on Twitter, on social media. People just attacked me left and right, for yep. sticking up for white supremacists. I mean, it was sort of insane. Literal, and, literal white supremacists. Literal, like, I mean, like literally 16 year old boys. I mean, it was just because, I mean, and of course, you know, they were saying this because they were wearing MAGA hats. If they were you know, 16-year-old persons of color, they would have been defending them. I mean, it, it is like, a, it is really was a fascinating kind of, you know, sort of uh, view into how the, the online left kind of, you know, um, th their own biases. But um, I wrote some column about it, and I sort of realized after I did, I remember talking to somebody, like, and they're like, wait, what is this Covington thing you're talking about? Like, no one knew what I was talking about. Right. You know, and I realized, like, unless you were online, it's a very online conversation. Unless you were part of that conversation online, you probably didn't care about this at all. Um, and if you did care about it, you probably weren't taking the view that these kids were like, you know, were worse than Hitler. You know, I'm exaggerating as a Simpsons line, but like that, you know, I, they, they were this awful people. So I, I do think that like these debates uh, that we have on, on, on Twitter, they tend to skew the understanding of like where, you know, where the Democratic Party is, like, like Michelle said. I mean, look, I, I'm, I have my issues with Biden on just on a personal level. And I think, you know, I think he's probably the wrong person to lead the party at a point when it has all this fresh young leadership. But I, that's not the view among most Democrats. And it's only, I mean, it may, it may be the view on Twitter, but it's not the view in the rest of, of, of the country. And I think, I think she's right in saying that it's important for, you know, those of us who spend a lot of time on Twitter, um, like most journalists do, to sort of recognize that what we're seeing there is a snapshot that is not representative of the rest of the country. It right. really isn't. Um, and I think understanding that is really, really useful tool to be an effective political journalist. Um, and I've seen, look, I mean, I started covering, you know, campaigns back in, I remember covering the, 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 oh, 2012 election and just being struck by how much at that point, this was, you know, seven years ago, Twitter was driving the conversation in a way that, that I think people didn't really appreciate at the time. And then by 2016, it was the conversation, right? I mean, it was literally everything was about Twitter or Facebook. And I, I think it had, it's had this really, you know, huge impact on how we cover elections and it's not altogether positive. Uh, it, it does skew how we understand the electorate. And I do think it's really, really useful. Michelle's piece was really smart and really useful in explaining to people, especially fellow journalists, that what we're seeing online is not what's happening in the rest of the country. Well, I think Biden's an interesting example of that because the the sort of the present line on the left, online left, is that, and I'm actually a little bit sympathetic to this, I should admit, is that you'll be making a mistake by electing Biden because he's just another sort of boring, moderate, technocratic Hillary Kerry type who Trump could beat. But you're saying when you talk to voters that they feel exactly the opposite. They, they're into him because they think he's the guy who could beat Trump. That's exactly right. I mean, that, that is, I, I think your first point is one that I'm very sympathetic to. Um, uh, Peter Hamby had a really good piece in Vanity Fair making this exact argument that when Democrats pick what they think is the safe electable pick, they tend to lose. Uh, Kerry in 04 is an example, but Kerry actually ran a pretty good campaign in 04. Gore in 2000. Um, and to some extent, Hillary in 2016. So there's something to that. But I, I just think that, you know, all that might be true, but you're just not going to shake a lot of Democrats from the belief that they have to be Trump and that Biden's the best person to do it. You know, and and I, I was so skeptical um, on Biden and I have been for quite a while. I just thought he's a gaffe machine. He's going to screw up like he always does. He's too old. Not where the party is. And I think that view was wrong. I think I was wrong about that. I think that I, I, at this point, I mean, look, it's too early to say for sure. And certainly, Joe, if I know anything about Joe Biden is that he can screw this up 
<laughs> royally because he's done it he's done it in the past. But I think I think this electability question is really plays in his favor. And I will give him credit. He's wisely playing off of that. You know, I mean, to, to, to use in his, in his announcement video, he talked about Charlottesville. He, may, he talked about Trump directly. He went after Trump in a way that very few of the other candidates are doing. I mean, Warren barely ever mentions Trump. She talks about the corruption in Washington and the and the and the elite and, you know, and the sort of uh, um, how Washington works for the, for the elite and for the well-connected, but not for the rest of us. Doesn't mention Trump very much. Biden's going after Trump, he's, and, and he's doing it on purpose. He's because that plays up for voters what is about him that they like. I mean, there are things about Biden that you may not like, but but when it comes down to it, if you want to be Trump, and that's the number one priority, I'm your guy, and that's an effective message. I, I guess I'm torn on the whole Trump thing, and I can sort of see it both ways because I don't. There was no shortage of communication from Hillary Clinton's campaign about how bad a guy Trump was, or shortage of media coverage about him being a bad guy, and. My sense is there's some subsequent reporting and polling, especially among like black and Latino voters, where especially the claim that he's racist, which, of course, I agree with, just it didn't really sink in, maybe because people are so sort of, you know, everything's so loud and there's so many accusations in both directions, people can lose sight of that. But I mean, what what do you think? Do you think the answer is just attack him on the issues directly? Do you think it should be about his morality as a human or is it just sort of somewhere in between? So I, there's two things that's fascinating. First of all, it's interesting that people criticize Hillary Clinton for making too much about Trump. And yet in 2018, and to some extent in 2020, Democrats have not talked about Trump at all. Right? I mean, not at all. I shouldn't say that. But in 2018, they barely talked about Trump. It was all about health care, all about Republican Congress. It wasn't about Trump. Uh, like, make your mind up. Which, which, which strategy is the better one? Talk about Trump or not talking about Trump? Because in 2018, that, that has not been the case. In 2020, among these candidates, it hasn't been the case either. It really hasn't. Beto doesn't talk about Trump. Kamala now is starting to talk about Trump more. Mayor Pete doesn't talk about Trump so much. I mean, they focus on like, you know, solutions. They focus on the larger systematic issues, but they're not talking so much about Trump. I, I think this is a mistake, in my honest opinion. I mean, I, I you know, at least for 2020, I mean, there were, look, in 2018, I, I got the logic of it. I understood there was it made certain sense, especially for Democrats who are running in, you know, purple districts or trying to win over, you know, Republican voters. But 2020 is referendum on Donald Trump. And so this gets like this question about you know, impeachment, which I, I, I think the politics of this, I find befuddling this idea that to talk about impeachment is to talk about the president's rampant corruption and law breaking is somehow bad politics. Like who who I don't understand how this idea became so ingrained in our politics that pointing out that the president is a criminal <laughs> is somehow a bad thing. But you've That's been a- you've been you've been involved in in mainstream democratic politics for a while, right? Is it hasn't there always been a thing where Democrats are way more scared of their own shadow than Republicans are? Always, yeah. always scared of their shadow. Republicans, if, if I can tell you right now that if they were running against Trump, that's all they would talk about. Doesn't mean it would work necessarily. That's all they would talk about. And look, you can say this in, in defense of Democrats, right? They have been scared of their own shadow. They have also won the popular vote in six of the last seven presidential elections. So there is something to be said about the fact that they know what they're doing. But I always remind people of something. In 2008, right, when Barack Obama ran on the, the hope, hope he change election, that's what Sarah Palin called it, the hope he change Hope he change stuff, yeah. Hope he change stuff. People forget this. Barack Obama ran the single most negative presidential campaign in American political history. He ran more negative ads against John McCain 
than any other candidate had ever run before. Okay, and what did he do? He tied him directly to George W. Bush because nobody liked George W. Bush. Literally, no one liked him. Maybe maybe the family liked him, but that's about it. <laughs> that's about it yeah. So so the thing is that like these negative attacks, they generally work, right? They worked against McCain. They worked against Romney. You know, to some extent, when Kerry went negative on on Bush, that's when he did a lot better in that election. Like this is the key to winning is to pointing out how terrible Trump is. And look, this is not like a partisan argument. Trump is terrible. There's not, this is to me like a, 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 a factual point and they can make this argument. And so I, I guess in my perspective, you know, Trump is deeply unpopular for, for an incumbent president and a great economy. And why you don't want to focus on him and the things that make him unpopular you know, I don't get. And I, I this argument over and over again I hear from Democrats that if you do this, it's going to fire up Trump's base. Anything will fire up Trump's base. Right. <laughs> Every, everything will. Trump will, will make up some BS lie about Democrats, and that will fire them up. If you look at this, the, is, this is a group of people yeah. that's still hoping to get to the truth about Obama being a Muslim. Exactly. And by the way, whenever I, every time I go to a, a Trump rally, I always try to at least ask one person if they still believe that, that Obama was born in the U.S. And I, Almost without, without fail, they will say they don't believe it, or they're not sure, or there's some question about it. Uh, but uh, sorry, I'm, I'm getting up. No, that, I mean that's because I bet I think I bet at that point that question has taken on such a sort of heightened identity resonance that Absolutely. they they almost say Absolutely. that it's like a screw you, like exactly, exactly. Listen, listen, you, you know, you know, liberal bubble dwelling columnist for the Boston Globe. Of course, I believe right. that. It's like but, they want to they want to be able to say something about you being a Jew, but it's <laughs> right. Well, that, that that usually happens. It's like a reference to New York of some sort, right? Or Wagner or something like that. Um, sorry, it's an Annie Hall reference. Anyway, but the point being, I, I just think that that if your worry is about is about exciting Trump voters or getting them enthusiastic, they're going to be enthusiastic. I can assure you, because he's going to be on the ticket. The, the key thing is you want to mobilize your voters. And you want to remind people who are on the fence and how they're on the fence, I have no idea. But people who are on the fence that Trump is bad and he's bad for the country. Like, that's what you want to remind them of. And I just I guess I don't understand any other strategy. I just don't. And I think to me that when it comes to something like impeachment, you know, if you can spend six months basically talking about how corrupt the president is, that's probably going to be in your long term political interest. That, that's my view of it. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, Nancy, I, I, it's hard to question Nancy Pelosi. She, you know, she's a good politician. She won back the House, 40 seats. She knows what she's doing. But I just don't know. I don't get it at all. I mean, putting aside, by the way, the fact that she, it's the right thing to do, which is what should be the most important consideration here. Anything else you want to mention or, or pitch on as we wrap up? Uh, no, just they should buy the book, you know. And I'm, I'm sorry about your, uh, your Celtics. That's, that was a shame what happened to them. Are you, are you a Knicks fan? I forget. Wow. That's insulting. No, I'm actually I'm actually a Pistons fan, which is almost worse. Not not, not as worse being a Knicks fan, but it's it's lately it's been pretty bad. Yeah, but I mean Blake this year was legitimately fun, right? In an unexpected way. Blake was fun. The team was fun for a while until they sort of fell apart at the end of the season and then got swept by the Bucks. Uh, I am looking forward to the uh, to the conference finals. It should be it should be pretty pretty exciting actually. Oh, the league is in pretty amazing shape right now. It's gonna be fun. Yeah, definitely it'll be a lot of fun. We should do we should come back and do a podcast when it's all over. Yeah, thank you very much for coming out. This was a great conversation, Michael. Always my pleasure. I'm happy to do it. Yeah, come on, all you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. He's got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. So put down your books and pick up a gun. I'm going to have a whole lot of fun. And it's one.
big chance has come at last.